Hello and welcome to Coffee with Conservationists, the podcast where I sit down with anyone who dedicates their lives to protecting, researching and documenting nature. I talk to them about their work in a range of areas, such as wildlife conservation, ecology, human and wildlife coexistence, and a whole host of other worldwide environmental issues. As you know, if you listen regularly, each episode I feature a different coffee. Today's coffee feature is Birds and Beans Coffee. Find out more at the end of the episode. UK listeners, this one is especially relevant to you today. Communities in the Global South have been facing the horrific effects of anthropogenic, that's man-made, climate change. But what happens when the climate crisis comes knocking on our door? How do we find hope when we're facing 40 degrees of heat one day and thunderous rainstorms the next? In this episode, I speak to Tolmaya Gregory and Selena Chien about just that. We talk about the science behind the climate and ecological crisis we're currently facing, the solutions on an international and local level, and finding hope and turning it into action. While this is an important episode for many, I will put a content warning for mentions of heatwaves, animal death, and apocalyptic language. I know a lot of us in our day-to-day lives face this kind of language, and sometimes we just don't want to hear any more of it. Hello, both of you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, Selena, pleasure to have you back. And Tolly, really nice to have you here for the first time. Do you prefer um, Tolmaya or Tolly? On Tolly is perfectly fine. <laughs> cool, all good. Um, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll kick it off by getting to know you a bit. Obviously, Selena, you've been here before, but um, for people who didn't listen to that episode, could you... Um, yeah, give me a rundown of who you are and uh, why you're why you work in nature. What what sparks joy about nature for you? What sparks joy? I love that. Um, well, hi, I'm Selena. I'm an environmental storyteller, an artist, and ecologist. Um, I started off studying biodiversity mostly through birds. Um, and then transitioned into photojournalism. And now I do all sorts of storytelling, focusing on biodiversity, um, whether that's documentary film or art, photography, um, and just generally communicating the crisis that we're experiencing, especially um, how it connects to the climate crisis. Great, and Tolly, uh, how about you? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Tomaya Gregory. I'm an artist and a climate justice activist. Um, I originally grew up wanting to be a fashion designer and then realised how terrible the industry is and the fact that we are facing a climate emergency. Um, so now I basically dedicate all of my time to um, also similarly communicating the climate crisis, trying to mobilise people into taking action um, and also creating art around it. Um, and specifically kind of the work that I want to focus more on is about kind of reimagining the future um, because I think we need to talk about what the future is going to look like once we have hopefully achieved climate action and climate justice and not just about all the problems that we're dealing with Um, and as part of that I host a podcast called Idealistically where we discuss what we would idealistically want in an ideal world. Amazing. Uh, that was one of the questions, actually. So you've answered that perfectly <laughs> early. Um, Selena, if I could get you to kind of, we're talking about the, the climate and ecological crisis in specifically in regards to the recent heat waves we have, because obviously in the Western world, we're really not used to seeing the effects of climate change as much as people in the global south are. 
So uh, a, a huge range of countries have been facing um, disasters caused by anthropogenic climate change for many, many years. Um, but it's only when it comes knocking on our door that we, a lot of people in the UK, especially kind of wake up and go, oh, we really should have done something about this 20 years ago. Um, so could you, from a, from a basic scientific perspective, give me an overview of what the climate and ecological crisis is? What does it mean when we say that crisis mm. and, and also anthropogenic climate change as opposed to just a random change in the climate? Wow, I'm really getting to put my scientist hat on, <laughs> which I haven't done in a while. Well, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's great to have these definitions and these clarifications. Um, the climate crisis, oh my gosh, it's one of those things that we don't really talk about in this community because it's something that's just so obvious to us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's anthropogenic, which means that it is caused by human activity and which is causing the atmospheric warming of our planet as a result of fossil fuel use and emission and extraction and the rampant um, extractive capitalist history um, really stemming from the industrial revolution that has caused this entire mess and I'm sure Tolly can say it's really most of the action of the global north that is causing all of this uh, devastation that is genuinely just threatening humanity, uh, the future of humanity and the future of biodiversity on this planet. Um, and one of the things I talk about is biodiversity crisis or the ecological or the extinction crisis, which has is very deeply intertwined with the climate crisis, but it's not the same thing. Because even if we did do everything we could possibly do to combat the climate crisis, that doesn't necessarily mean that we will address the ecological crisis. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be protecting and fostering and nourishing nature in the process. And nature is definitely an incredibly powerful ally in solving the climate crisis. So they're intertwined, but they're not the same. And sometimes biodiversity doesn't get talked about nearly as much. <laughs> um, the biodiversity crisis is the mass destruction of nature and the mass extinction that we are facing as a result of human practices and again it is mostly due to the actions of the global north stemming from the industrial revolution so that's my little spiel on that maybe tali you can probably add to that and from a more justice oriented perspective yeah sure i guess um whilst you're speaking like my way of thinking of it is like you say it's like a lot of the effects are coming from the impacts and actions of the global north and specifically like every industry that is in existence essentially so like i was talking about how i grew up wanting to be a fashion designer but that is also linked to the fossil fuel industry and to advertising and transport and food and finance and all of these things that are kind of interlinked and once you start kind of pulling at a thread on one you end up unpulling it all um so yeah it's really impossible i think to look at climate change from just i guess often it is discussed from the perspective of just emissions and like we need to be more green but actually it's like a whole societal thing which then obviously has uh ramifications for biodiversity and nature and life on earth <laughs> 
Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of it comes from a philosophical perspective. The reason why we're in this mess is because human beings think that we're above the rest of nature. Human beings think that they're not animals and they think, well, I mean, a certain type of human being <laughs> from a certain culture um, thinks that they're, you know, superior to other beings and it's their God-given right to go out into nature and to extract and use it at whatever amount and extent necessary for the proliferation of human endeavor. Um, it's this like old trope of man versus nature and the colonization of nature when in fact indigenous cultures for thousands of years have been living in harmony with nature, living in reciprocity, having an un innate intrinsic understanding, which I think all human beings have, that we are one with nature. We need to live with her and not against her and not taking from her exclusively, but also giving back. And it's the same, you know, that, that is exactly what led us to the situation that we are now in, whether that's climate or extinction or ecological. It's, it's the sorry that's my doorbell <laughs> it's the it's the unending taking and never really considering what we're giving because we can give yeah that was a perfect answer would you like to go and get your door no it's my family <laughs> sorry um, yeah thank you so much for those definitions because i think a lot of people kind of get put off by big words to do with the climate you know get put off by the word crisis or climate justice for some reason um and then they disengage because they're like oh it's another thing that i have to learn about i'm just gonna leave it um so i think breaking it down and making uh, terms like that more accessible and knowing that they're just you know that there's definitely things that everyone as individuals can do to learn and to fight for those things and against these crises um, is really, really important, which leads next, nicely onto the next point. I know you gave a little bit of a brief rundown, Tolly, at the beginning, but could you talk about Idealistically, the podcast, and uh, maybe a few of the guests you had, but more importantly, like, why did you start it? What, what is it and why, why would you like to put something like that out into the world? Yeah, sure. So like I said, uh, my podcast is talking about what we would idealistically want in an ideal world um I think as a, a climate activist myself I got to a stage especially during like the start of the COVID pandemic of just getting really bogged down by how we were in the movement and also just in general when climate and eco-friendly stuff and sustainability comes up um that it was often focused on like all the, the problems and I think at the start of my kind of activism journey, that was really, really helpful because I needed to know what was wrong in order to know what we need to do to fix it kind of thing. Like that is how you learn and how you find your drive to make things better, I think. Um, but after a while, it's like, but like, we don't really ever talk about like what it's going to look like when we stop all of those things. Like when we turn the taps off on fossil fuels, like then what? Or when we stop, you know, um, investing in fast fashion then what like all of these questions I kept having and just realized we weren't having those conversations and we also weren't like being very creative and very imaginative I think you get bogged down by like politicians or uh, just kind of like 
structures and society as a whole telling you that like what you're thinking and what you want for the world is like way too idealistic and it's like not possible and all this stuff and it's like but there's still value in having big dreams and there's still value in like thinking of a utopia because then you know like yeah exactly like what you're driving towards and even if you can't create the most perfect version of a world or the most perfect version of the future you know what direction to head in um and so that's kind of like the inspiration behind it was like if we can start having more of these conversations then hopefully we can start building a picture and people who maybe aren't um as involved in the movement or aren't as involved in these spaces like they'll have more of a clear idea of what we want as well like when I talk to my family or I go out into my community it's like oh well this is what I want for the future like what do you want um so I think that that's kind of the the benefit of it really is just trying to inspire people in that way um and in terms of like who I've spoken to I speak to artists activists I've had a climate scientist on um authors um I had one of my favorite uh sustainable fashion people Arja Barber on we did a live podcast recording and she's so full of wisdom and thoughts and it was really fun having that conversation um and one of the fun questions that I ask um within the podcast is like what would you invent and I think that's a really interesting one because I've realized that a common theme is that everyone wants sustainable transport <laughs> everyone wants to be able to travel and explore the world and experience the world without having an impact um, so yeah, if you're looking for uh, a podcast that <laughs> will uh, align with your your wants and needs for that, then definitely have a listen because that is very much a common thread. <laughs> Absolutely, I think that's really really important. Um, I've been in far too many activist spaces and just spaces in general. Now it's a it's a common conversation with very very apocalyptic language, very doom saying, and a lot of important discussions happening. But I now have gone into some spaces that actually have um, agreements in place with trigger warnings and like, you know, asking before talking about the climate crisis, because it can bring out a lot of really negative and very depressing emotions um, in a lot of us. And find, having a podcast and having a space where people can go and see other people's um, positivity around it and kind of positive visions for this this world beyond fossil fuels and beyond um negative anthropogenic impact is is so so important um how do you personally find hope and how can we all find hope in um you know especially after it was i was traveling back from cheltenham actually um on wednesday was it no tuesday last tuesday and it was pretty hard to find hope because I was in 36 degrees of heat. I had a three hour delayed train. I got stranded in Bristol because there was fires in London and Birmingham, just out of the station. There was electric wires down, you know, transport, public transport, which is the only way of getting around for millions of people who don't drive, um, was completely closed off on two of the you know, biggest main lines in the country it was pretty depressing. It was really, really difficult, you know, to, to even be, look, I didn't, I avoided social media for a start on that day, but it's even just to look around and like hear the news around you and the train announcements is really difficult. How can we all find hope on, on a day like that, but then a day-to-day -day basis as well? 
Yeah, I think you said it about like my podcast is like that is the space where I can be hopeful because I think um, often people assume that I'm a very hopeful person because I have those sorts of conversations when ultimately I'm kind of just like you where when we're experiencing the heat waves, I had to like have what I call a climate cry um, and just like actually process the emotions. Like I have a journal which I dedicate literally just to eco-anxiety and whenever it comes up, I just write in that. Um, Because I think it's really important to actually validate those feelings um, as much as it is important to find hope as well. Um, So I think, yeah, for me, to find that hope, I have to first process those feelings. And then I think, honestly, like one of the biggest things for me is like finding other people who not only feel the same in kind of recognizing how terrifying it is, but also finding the people who don't want to just stay in that like like you said like you go into spaces or you find people who very much do want to stay in that or they want to stay in the anger and like that's what fuels them and that's not necessarily like a wrong thing like if that's what works for you that works for you but I think for me I couldn't like I can't find hope in that like I feel deflated and I'm like yeah I end up kind of catching their feelings and I'm like oh well there's no hope (laughs) yes the world's coming (laughs) and it is really difficult like you said with like social media and stuff um like watching the videos of the fires in London it's it's terrifying because it's like this is stuff we thought would happen in like 2050 not 2022 Mm. and I think that is what's really scary to me it's like what is the future gonna look like if this is already our reality Um, And obviously, again, going back to what you said earlier, like that's a privileged perspective to be coming from when other parts of the world have been thinking that for literally decades. Um, So, yeah, finding my people and and just trying to leave, give space to all the feelings is what helps me. Yeah, absolutely. And Selena, would you like to add anything to that? Because I was going to ask you next. I was going to come to come to how you find. (laughs) I was going to. I was just going to um, totally agree with what Tolly said. It's finding your people, finding a community, um, finding people that support you, who care about the same things as you do. But as she said, I find it far more helpful to be surrounded by people who are fueled by love than fueled by anger because anger is not sustainable and it just eats away at you. I used to be fueled on anger. I mean, I remember when I first started in, in, I mean, the reason why I wanted to become a scientist and wanted to go into wildlife conservation was because I loved wildlife and I loved nature. And at like six years old or something, I was like, wait, the Amazon is being cut down. <laughs> what on earth is happening? And just like crying about it and um, and being so angry at the, at the people responsible. And I feel, I really felt that during the heat wave. I feel like the last couple of years, I've really, I've managed to, always constantly remind myself like why am I doing this grounding myself in nature like I'm doing this because this is what I love because there's so many other life forms out there that are exciting and beautiful and curious and we just haven't had the opportunity to either amplify or share their voices in the in the parts of our world that really need to hear it or um or learn about them at all so it's grounding yourself in the things that you love and things that motivate you. But then during this heat wave, oh my God, I had several climate cries. <laughs> I could not think about anything else. I was 
like I couldn't move. It was so hot. And I've done field work in, you know, 40 degree Celsius temperatures in other parts of the world, many, many places, mostly the tropics. But something about it being here, and I live in London, so it's, it's, the city is so hot. There's just like the concrete is boiling. You can't, there are no birds, there are no trees to hide under, you know, I mean, you just think about, yeah, I'm suffering and it's awful. And I was just thinking like, we're all lobsters in a pan and somebody put us in this pan. Um, but at the same time, thinking about all the other living creatures that are dealing with this and who, you know, imagine being a migratory bird and just being like, what on earth is happening here? I'm supposed to be cooling down <laughs> coming to the UK. So, you know, finding hope can be really difficult. And I always get asked this, and I'm sure Polly does as well, because this is what people really, I mean, eco-anxiety, people are suffering. Um, but I think, and sometimes perspective can really, can really disenchant people. Sometimes like being like, okay, but what about other parts of the world and how are other people dealing with this? Sometimes that can be really harmful and invalidating of your own feelings, but I also find it really um, motivating and I find it very humbling, um, especially because if you have colleagues that are from that part of the world who are struggling with it, you know, it's like you can start the work and you can start raising the alarm bells before it gets to 40 degrees Celsius here in the UK. Um, but yeah, it's finding your community and spending time outside in nature. <laughs> what I find kind of interesting about both of our answers is the fact that neither one of us like jump straight to being like, this is the thing that I do, because it kind of proves <laughs> that like, you have to, you have to acknowledge like, what is like, you have to acknowledge the bad stuff to know why you need to be hopeful. And I think especially like, like you said, like when people ask us, like, how do you stay hopeful? Like they're looking for something to cling on to, but it's like, I don't necessarily have that because like, <laughs> I was never given that. Like, I don't, I was never given like a guidebook on how to deal with this either. Like I'm just feeling through it. Um, so yeah, I think that's really interesting that we both were kind of like, uh, everything's a bit rubbish, but this is what I try to do. <laughs> exactly. I mean, how how are you supposed to? It's 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 an impossible question. Find it's literally the meme of like the dog in the house on fire. Like I'm fine. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. fine here. <laughs> so it's it's finding these little outlets of joy. And also, I find it hard sometimes when I am feeling really great, or if I'm doing something completely unrelated to environmental you know work I used to feel really guilty I used to feel really guilty I'm like okay I'm gonna put that aside now and I'm gonna do something that I just want to do and this is something I I was mentioning during the heat wave with some of my closest friends like I wish that I didn't have to just constantly think about extinction and survival I wish I could just go out and look at the birds and have a nice time and not have to think about what are we doing to them? How can we save them? Oh my God, what's going on with the planet? So I think it's also allowing yourself to feel the joy when the joy does come because some people are just, you know, you can't be too harsh on yourself sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I had a, I'm for, for a lot of my friends, I'm kind of like the climate person. Like I don't do any public facing climate work anymore, but I am the person who has all the climate activist friends and who 
um you know all the stuff that I do is very like it's not on social media really but I'm still known as the person who's like George how do how do we deal with this and especially the other day I was just like I don't I curl up into a ball and cry <laughs> like you know I just don't deal with it properly um you know come back to me in like five days when I've had time to process this uh, and I think having a climate cry is it's incredibly cathartic and, and really, really good sometimes to just get it all out because that there's so much, as you said, there, there can be a lot of pent up anger, especially looking at, you know, London where we have a government in, in the capital and London's on fire. And then in the middle of that fire, there was just two people who are heading, you know, head to head in an, a very undemocratic election. Neither of them are going to do anything for the planet. One of them has openly said he's going to not do anything for the planet specifically. Um, like it's stated in his manifesto that he will ban wind farms. Just cool. Uh, yeah, it's like, it's, there's, there's room for, there's so much room for anger. And I think getting it out on your own and in your own space and in a place where you feel safe to release that anger and then move on to embracing joy and, and action and yeah, trying to find that hope in whatever way you can. It it can mm -hmm. be really important. Mm -hmm. And and push and and channeling that energy into action is extremely it's one it's the most gratifying thing you can do really i mean yeah. it's some it's like the answer that nobody wants but like how do you deal with your eco anxiety i do something about it <laughs> and obviously it's like the harder answer because a lot of people don't want to hear that um but it's the truth yeah totally as i kind of i guess the person on the in this in this meeting with the most kind of public facing you know climate activist climate artist um you do an, a huge amount uh directly what would to be to kind of do there's a lot of tactics uh, i don't really have the words for this because i could write a book on the things i disagree with within climate organizations and climate movements um, there's a lot that I don't like about them, but there's a lot of amazing work that climate activists and activist groups like Greenpeace and XR do. Um, but to do kind of direct action is not always accessible. Um, we don't like to focus on the individual here on the podcast because the individual isn't, it, we're not to blame. It's not our fault. Despite what BP tells you, this is not your fault. Um, just people listening at home, you having a Starbucks takeaway, don't feel guilty. Like it's okay. You're allowed to do that. Um, not too much, but like, you know, it's <laughs> everything in moderation. You exactly. Know? Like don't feel Even guilty moderation. about nobody's perfect. And I think so to be kind of, to do this direct action is, um, is very, very, it comes from a place of privilege. A lot of the time you, put out a really really good post quite a while ago i think on the other roles within the climate movement um what would you say to people who are struggling to get involved in climate justice activism because they don't want to be arrested or they physically can't be arrested or yeah there's there's all sorts of the reasons why people can't do that what would you say yeah um so i guess a little bit of background on what you're referencing um yeah. i did a post which is basically just 
from what I know, being in kind of organizing spaces, uh, all the different roles that I needed, and they were ones which weren't kind of protest focused. So the one that I always say, and it's become a bit of a strap line for me, is that we need people to make cups of tea. <laughs> Just something as simple as that, when you're in like a space of a group of people who are trying to make the world better, you need people who are going to look after everyone. And also you need people who will also look after that person. Like there are so many roles just like that, that I needed. Um, And I also listed stuff like if you're an accountant and you know how to do spreadsheets, like you could do the finances for a climate movement. Or if you know how to do graphic design, you can make posters. Or if you're a builder, maybe if you do want to be part of a disruptive movement, you could build the structures that they use to disrupt places. Um, like there are so many ways to use the skills that you already have and also like the passions that you already have to be a part of this and it doesn't have to look like going to like glue yourself in the middle of the road or something like that Um, so yeah I think highlighting that actually um, Dr Ayana Elizabeth Johnson has an amazing thing called the climate Venn diagram and it's basically like one circle of the climate Venn is um, what you love doing Um, One is what you're good at and one is what problem needs solving. So you kind of put that all together and what kind of crosses over or whatever can be your role essentially. So like for me, I love art and creativity. I'm also good at that, but I'm also good at other stuff. Like, I don't know, I've done like admin and uh, press releases and like all boring stuff that climate movements still need doing um, but and then like the solution might be like communicating something or um, making a movement more exciting or like more desirable to be a part of or whatever so then my role is to be a communicator and an artist um, and that means I get to do the thing I love but also make an impact and I think the more we highlight the fact that everyone has a role And like, even if you think you don't, you do. I think the more people we can get on board in hopefully a more accessible and inviting way for everyone. Yeah, that's a really good answer. Because I think um, talking to a lot of my my friends and people around me who aren't really involved in those spaces yet, it is a kind of, they think that it stops, the, the kind of the buck stops with XR. They just think that, because this organization over the last few years has had such a huge presence or um you know they've seen greenpeace actions that are just kind of like the the little tiny nvda nonviolent direct action teams going and doing these actions and not really they don't really look beyond and they get put off by that instantly and they don't because they you know a lot of my friends aren't in a position through a privilege enough to be able to be arrested for whatever reason or to be able to take part in actions at all um, and they don't really see that actually there's, you know, loads and loads of local groups around the country doing good work or it's not just these organizations. It's, you know, loads, hundreds probably now uh, more doing things from local community work until national organizing. Um, so there's roles for really everyone. Selena, could we talk about like how people can help climate scientists directly, how people without a scientific education, because uh, a lot of my listeners aren't scientists and uh, are not training to be scientists and have no interest in being scientists yet, uh, but are just, yeah, they're just, just ordinary people who would like to help out in climate science. Is there a kind of, I don't know, a specific wing of citizen science 
for climate research yet? Does that exist? Well, I'm not a climate scientist, so I wouldn't know. (laughs) Um, I'm an ecologist. And even then, I think what I've always said, and it's the reason why I left science, is that the extinction crisis and the climate crisis is not a science. It's not, there's no problem with science. Mm. It's a communications crisis. All the policymakers, all of the people on the boards of all of these evil companies, they have the science. They know what they're doing wrong. It's just whether they have the incentive, the carrot and the stick um, to do something about it. Um, and so what I tell people is talk about it. Um, talk about it to everyone. It's not something that just climate scientists can talk about. Everyone can talk about climate climate and extinction everyone like even if you don't have all of the facts if you feel impacted by it if you are feeling upset if you like going to the park then you should be talking about it and you should be talking about it to absolutely everyone and also getting involved with the climate movement or the environmental movement or just anything to do with protecting nature it doesn't it's not limited to direct action and it's not limited to activism and it's not limited to these organizations everything and anything is involved with the environmental movement. If you're a lawyer, look into environmental law. If you're an accountant, if you work in finance, if you work in investment, if you're in a consultant company, like all of these jobs, everybody has a role to play. And even if it's just pressuring your superiors, I mean, even young kids talking to their parents, the amount of influence that kids can have on their parents and the decisions that their parents are making, where they put their money, what they're investing in. And I'm talking up like, this is all recommendations that are very limited to very privileged middle-class, you know, UK, US, continental Europe, because we're the ones that are in a position. And even if we don't think we're that privileged compared to, you know, people, farmers who are losing their crops due to heat waves and droughts, in the global south, there's far more privilege and sway here than anywhere else in the world to make an influence on this. I mean, even at some something as simple as planting more wildflowers in your garden, you can do something. So I think it's no action is too small. And as Tolly said, idealistically, <laughs> nothing like there's nothing bad about being idealistic and naive. It is exactly what we need. There's this thing in science that we call shifting baselines. You know, what we consider as a healthy ecosystem or atmosphere now, 30 or 50 years ago would have been a disaster. And you can see it really clearly. And for example, if you look at like the population of fish in the ocean, because this is one of the few industries where we have so much data that go back a hundred or 200 years, what was considered a terrible, terrible year is now considered an amazing year. And so our expectations are incredibly low right now. All of the things, all the ambitious targets that we're setting for ourselves as scientists and policymakers are way too low. We need the idealistic minds of young people and we need the like unwielding accountability of activists against these people in power to hold them accountable and actually aim for a world where we can survive and that nature won't experience tipping points. So, you know, everyone and anyone can get involved, whether it's something as small as planting 
flowers in your garden to let the bees have a little pit stop or putting feeders out for your birds or changing to a green bank or convincing your people like old generations in your family to move their pensions to something that doesn't invest in fossil fuels um i will just say very briefly that i have like less than a minute on this meeting um we don't have very long i promise uh but do you mind if i shut this down quickly and then resend you a new link yeah. yep no cool. problem perfect thank you i'll see you both in a minute so yeah sorry about that but we're back um Selena, that was a perfect question because you turned my mistake. Uh, obviously, I know you're not a climate scientist, um, but for some reason, my brain just went, she's done a master's degree. She's omniscient across like all science disciplines um, <laughs> because she's like cleverer. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, you've turned that uh, instead of just going, I don't know, you turned it into a perfect response. So thank you for that. Um, I want to move on to kind of a really basic thing from a scientific perspective. Um, I guess both of you might have an input for this. Um, and I, obviously we don't, I, as I said, we don't like to focus too much on the individual, but it is really important because one of the biggest things during this recent heat wave that I thought of was wildlife and just general, we're already in a nature, a heavily nature depleted country in the United Kingdom. Um, we're in a, a sort of, mini biodiversity crisis just on our country as well because yeah there's there's so many species in decline here if there is another heat wave you know this summer or you know there, there probably will be there almost certainly will be more of these heat waves soon what can people do to care for wildlife at the basic level at the very kind of like obviously you know dismantling the fossil fuel industry is is a pretty good place to start but like as a as a person what can you walk out your back door and do to make sure wildlife are safe happy and healthy during these times give them water keep water out try to rewild if you have a little bit of outdoor space on your you know, try to rewild it a little bit or just kind of let it grow and be free um, and if there is another heat wave, put lots of water out, put lots of, you know, food out. Um, if you have flowers, don't cut them. Uh, <laughs> and shade. But it is, it's a difficult thing because, um, yeah, it's, it's, heat is interacting with like your fundamental basic process, chemical processes. And so every individual is going to be suffering no matter what unless you have air conditioning, which most people don't have. Um, so it, I think alternatively, you can join some of these groups such as that support rewilding across the UK. And I think a lot of the issues here in the UK that have to do with nature and um, rewilding is the enormous shocking inequity of land ownership in this country. Um, the Queen owns the most amount of land here and um, lots of people have been trying to pressure the royal family to, to rewild large parts of it uh, unsuccessfully. She has not provided a response. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so maybe trying to support some local conservation efforts, local rewilding efforts and leaving water out during the heat wave. I think that's all I can say. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really important um, to kind of mention that because a lot of people just don't realize that 
everyone's suffering equally. All beings um, don't like the heat. So I think it's a, you know, I kept obviously a lot of people, there's a lot of PSAs out on Instagram during a heat wave about, especially from vets and stuff, but, and wildlife hospitals, but it's always good to, to get that out there again as well. Oh, can I add something? Sorry. Yeah, cool. Some of the most threatened habitats in the world, especially here, but everywhere are fresh waters. Mm. For streams, rivers, ponds, things like that. So if you do have land, please make a pond. <laughs> um, because as, as with the heat waves, uh, water-based organisms will kind of tend to suffer a lot more and they're a lot more sensitive to these kind of massive environmental fluctuations. Um, and they die really quickly. Same as like marine heat waves are absolutely detrimental. Um, and also the ocean uh, kind of is the global buffer to all of our, like the world, the life on land would be so much worse if the ocean wasn't taking up so much of the excess carbon and heat that we've released. Yeah. I think um, we've talked about finding hope a lot and how that process works for us and how it can work for everyone else. Um, we're gonna kind of imagine my audience for a second is completely oblivious to anything climate related they are i don't know they're definitely not these people and i hope they're not these people but uh, imagine they have just turned off fox news and gone you know what i want to learn about the climate crisis from a scientific perspective and a justice oriented perspective what are our solutions what do we do today what do you tell these people who have come from a place of ignorance and you know just not even ignorance just i don't know just all sh they've shut off them they've shut their minds off from any solutions they don't believe it's a thing and they've just started to believe that someone's just told them that climate change is real and they've gone <laughs> oh really oh cool okay like, how do we fix this how do well, you those are exactly the kind of people that you want to speak to honestly mm -hmm. exactly um i'm really intrigued to hear what tali has to say I mean, I guess first of all, first off would be like, educate yourself as much as you can in whatever way is like best for you. Like for me, I would find reading really helpful. Um, I did a lot of reading of books when I first started on like my sustainability journal and some were like, I read This Is Not A Drill, which is the XR book. And I wouldn't recommend that as a first book, but I remember books like that where they are actually quite heavy hitting like are really powerful and impactful because I think you whilst you're reading you can't really escape from like facts just in your face um so yeah just educate yourself in whatever way even if it's like documentaries or whatever I think the more you can absorb about it the more you can't ignore it um I think for me especially like with fashion for example like the more I learn about it the more I couldn't like justify being as involved in fashion as I was um so yeah education and then it goes back to like the whole what do you love kind of thing I think learn about what you love and how that will be impacted by the climate um because I think that will give you drive to like do something about it um I you know you can think about like football <laughs> if you like football what how is that going to be affected oh uh I don't know, like countries are going to be experiencing extreme heat. So it's going to be more difficult to be able to play your sport in a healthy way. Or um, 
you know, we're seeing protesters go to like football matches and stuff now. And it's like, well, maybe start questioning, like, why is that happening? Like, why do they care so deeply and want to show up in a space like football? I think just like questioning all the stuff that you love can be a really good way, again, to like add to that education Um, and then start talking about it with other people. Like if you're new to it, like start asking questions of other people in your community or in your friends and family in those circles. Like if you're also in that boat, then it's likely you have other people who are in the same boat and you can kind of maybe bring them along on your journey as you start to learn more. Um, And not only will you feel less alone, but maybe you can kind of bounce things off of each other and I guess get to a better place within climate quicker if you have each other if that makes sense yeah it does so um, i can add to that yeah, yeah that'd be great. <laughs> well i have a background in visual storytelling so through photography or documentary and i think or i mean even music it's just channeling all these other mediums to mm-hmm. speak to people at a level and in a way that they understand and what for me is the most important thing and this is coming from a scientist, is to go beyond all the facts and go straight to the heart and straight to the feelings. And there are these things called universal human values. No matter who you are, no matter what you care about, no matter where you are in the world or how old you are, there are certain things that you will care about. You'll care about the safety of your family. You will care about your home. You will care about whether you have food to put on the table. You will care about how clean your water is. And these are all things that will be directly and massively impacted by the climate and ecological crisis. And beyond, you know, not even talking about the facts, not even talking about all these really, you know, and honestly, climate crisis, it is an abstract and complex idea because it's something that is invisible in the atmosphere and is reliant on numbers and reliant on a certain level of education to understand. So speaking to people through their feelings and doing that through documentaries or through photo or through storytelling, because you could have a documentary about a family of farmers in sub-Saharan Africa who are suffering from drought And no matter who you are in the world, you will, to a certain extent, empathize with these people and what they're suffering and going through. And then you tell them, you're going to be going through that. Your life and your family and your loved ones are going to be impacted by this. And so I try to appeal to people's feelings because I was a scientist and it didn't work (laughs) because we have all the facts and we have all the numbers and people don't care. And people are following what is immediately gratifying um, and not just people, but like institutions and in society, we are more interested in making money in the short term than making sure safeguarding that we have a future in the long term. So it's speaking to those feelings because all of our decisions are based off of a feeling. And you kind of, you want to get to the point where people's gut instinct is in favor of protecting the planet. Um, And when it comes to solutions and what people can do, you know, it's a just transition to renewable energy globally. It's 
the restoration and protection of wild areas and nature across the planet. We need to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, and we need to protect 50% of the planet by 2050, ocean and land. And those are like really clear targets that people should just have drilled into their brains. And where you keep your money is one of the most impactful things that you can do as an individual. And I know you don't want to focus on the individual, but it's a really no, important thing, important, you know, right? where people keep their money, what they're investing in, what companies they support and who they vote for. Those are all things that you as an individual can do. How involved or how much you know or not is almost those things don't, doesn't even really matter. It's if you care, <laughs> it's where you put your money. And who you vote for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, th those are important individual actions. There definitely are a lot of actions that a lot of places that we need to focus on the individual. Um, when I say I don't like to, it just means that I just, you know, it's more important to focus to hold big corporations accountable. Um, Absolutely. Really always because uh, more often than not, they're the ones telling us that we're to blame. Um, I think my favorite fact to kind of put on people who say that we're to blame too much is that, um, BP paid the marketing agency who came up with the term carbon footprint, which I love because it's a horrible fact because it shows how it, like sinister BP are in one of the many ways that they are. But it also just is like most of the things that you feel guilty about, you feel guilty because, a big oil company or a big fossil fuel company has told somebody else to use their skills as creatives to make you feel guilty about them. Mm -hmm. And visual culture as well. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Tolly. I was just say one thing I learned about that. I think it was on, um, it was on the hot take podcast. Um, that actually I believe the term carbon footprint comes from the like mining side of fossil fuels. Um, yeah. so it was actually BP that like popularized it. Mm. Um, but now I've learned that I'm like, mm, it wasn't even BP. It was like before that as well. Wow. Um, okay. But yeah, the advertising side of it, I can go on about that. I'm part of um, Clean Creatives, which is a campaign that's basically trying to get uh, advertising industry to stop working with fossil fuels. Because it's, yeah, like I said at the beginning, like it's all of these industries combined and like being best friends with each other um, that like keep all of these problems happening. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to, um, because we don't, thanks for the correction, first of all. Secondly, <laughs> um, I, we don't have time for this because it's like hours of conversations that we can have, but I'll, I'll urge everyone to go and look at your work recently when you went and did some actions at Cannes, uh, Cannes Lions, is that right? Is that how yeah. I pronounce it? Cool. I think it's um, Cannes, but okay. everyone gets it wrong. I sure. Even there, I was like, when we were filming content and stuff, I was like, everyone, remember, we have to get it right. Anyway, Tali's work with Clean Creatives and um, your actions recently there were amazing. So definitely when people have more time, go and check out her Instagram where they'll, most of that stuff is, is sitting currently. <laughs> um, I think we've talked about a lot of pretty uh, hopeful things and a lot of pretty not so hopeful things, which is a kind of um, a mix that we all have to come to terms with in this line of work. Um, we like to finish off with a quick fire round, which I really find 
quite interesting sometimes because it's quite a funny, silly little thing. And there's a lot of podcast episodes where we've spoken about um, really dark topics like neocolonialism and conservation and orca cap- cetacean captivity. And then we've just kind of gone, okay, let's learn a bit about you in a little quick fire round. And it, it can, I just want to make sure that my audience is aware that um, having this little thing is, is a kind of a way to end, neatly wrap up the podcast and to kind of um, lighten the mood a little, but it's in no way taking away from or trivializing the issues that we've talked about. Um, so I'm going to ask, because there's two of you, I'll just ask the same question. And then if we go because um, of how you are on my screen, Tolly and then Selena just just answers um i did say you've done this before selena and like you know that it's not a quick fire round because it was supposed to and then my questions were actually really hard and everyone was like i can't answer this in like two seconds you've got to give me more time um so just take your time but anyway first off um what is your favorite animal or organism can really be anything what is your favorite living being there you go. That's a better way of putting it. Um, I think my cat, my family cat, would be offended if I didn't say cats because I love her. So, cats. <laughs> I love that because even though I have the entire spectrum and tree of life to choose from, <laughs> if I really wanted to see a favorite organism, it would be my cat. Um, <laughs> but if um, I really love parrots, but there are many, many, there are like, 300 plus species of parrots so um i, I will give you parrots <laughs> the, wide, the wide parrots i'm really interested yes. now as soon as this is this meeting's over i'm going to go back and listen to your answer from your previous episode because i think it might have changed which with any nature lover and any ecologist it usually does change because you know quite an impossible question like yeah. who has a favorite animal that they yeah. keep forever that's crazy um, and I, I also love fungi, but yeah. that's an entire kingdom, so yeah, it doesn't work. I mean, <laughs> my favorite organism, it would definitely be some form of fungi because they're incredible. Um, yeah. nothing they facilitate more to be said life on Earth. Yeah, we wouldn't be here without them. Next up, uh, where is a place you like to go and connect with nature? Kind of the one outdoorsy place you have the privilege to feel really at home? Ooh, ooh, ooh good question. Um, can I say too, and be cheeky, um, yeah. I have not spent as much time there because I moved to the opposite side of my town, but there is this, I think it's a sequoia tree in one of the local parks. And I used to love uh, just sitting underneath it and reading my book. And it would always be perfect for if I wanted sunlight or perfect if I wanted shade or it would also protect me in the wind or the rain. So it's like a really good place and my favorite spot in my park. I also love going to Clevedon, which is near Bristol, because it has a really nice place to view the sunset and you can have a little swim at the same time. Um, So yeah, those two places are very nice. (laughs) They sound so beautiful. Um, I don't really have one place because I have lived in so many places and I call many different places home. And that is the curse of being both, I don't know, from many, many, many cultures and countries uh, and races. But um, recently, 
it since I moved to London, I would say the any of the ponds in the parks, like St. James Park has some really cool birds. <laughs> I sound like such a bird nerd. I do, I swear I do like other things. But there you go to the ponds and everybody's there, the swans, the ducks, the geese. And in St. James Park, you can see the um a goose called the Nene, which is a critically endangered goose from Hawaii that was brought here. Um, and they've got really funny looking feet. So yeah. <laughs> I definitely need to take a trip there. I like how you've shortened your answer because it's still very broad, but I think last time you were on here, you said the rainforest, as in all of it, just like <laughs> many, yeah, yes. different, like at least three different biomes. Like just all of, um, all of it. All of it, cloud forest, Basin, lowland, everything. Yeah. I just haven't been able to go at all for yeah. month, for years now. So uh, at least you've devastating. Your, your scope a little tiny bit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a conservation hero? And by this, I don't really don't like being putting people up on a pedestal, but by this, I just mean someone, an individual in your kind of sphere of uh, experience or your work that you do that you really look up to and you just feel like needs a mention. Like a lot of my scientist friends would put on or my scientist guests would put on like an academic colleague, for example, um, someone who just inspires you to, to get up in the morning and keep doing what you're doing. Um, I usually never answer these questions. I usually just say, I don't know, because like yeah. you say, I don't really like choosing one person. Exactly. Um, and my answer is not going to be conservation related, but just kind of activism. Um, and I give this person because they gave me recent motivation when I was at Cam Lines, um, and that is Laura McDonald. Um, and they were the person who called out uh, Ben Van Buren on the TED countdown stage. Uh, he is the CEO of Shell. And that was honestly one of the most moving, powerful activism moments I've ever witnessed. I watched it live online, um, but that gave me the motivation to do something a lot smaller but something similar um and yeah it made me realize that, that we're all like individuals with the capability of doing pretty brave and scary things so yeah i'll say them <laughs> um i also really struggle with this question mm. um because it's not just you know i could think of so many different photographers or conservationists or activists or policymakers or lawyers um, because I think behind the direct action or behind the activism which is really very public facing there are so many people who are making miracles happen on the ground and a lot of it is some it's, it's just it's like you know, something as boring as thousands of grant applications for a conservation organization, or it's, you know, putting their life at risk, like rangers putting their life at risk, going into the field every single day and um, facing bullets from poachers or terrorist groups. You know, conservation is a war zone nowadays. So there are so many heroes, um, but one of them who I find very inspiring, her name is Farwiza. She is a forest conservationist in Sumatra and in Indonesia. It's focusing on the Loser ecosystem, which is the last place on earth where rhinos, orangutans, tigers, and elephants still coexist in a rainforest. And it's one of the most beautiful places 
in the world. And it's also one of the most difficult places in the world to be a woman um, and also to be someone working on the front line of conservation. So far we some. Yeah, those are perfect answers because it is a really tricky question. And I think the reason I put it in there in the first place, like these four questions I ask all of my guests since the beginning of time, um, I think it's just because it's part of my, my thing about having my list, giving my listeners a kind of non-exhaustive list of places to, to look into after the podcast and people to learn from afterwards. Um, and I've got a, such a range of interesting answers and some very unique, some not so unique as you can probably imagine, um, depending on who I've spoken to. But And I, I probably in the near future will take the question out because as you said, I don't like putting people on a pedestal. Um, but it is, yeah, it's, it's always nice to hear about people who who are not like as much as as much amazing work as they've done in the past, like people who aren't Chris Packham or David Attenborough. It's nice to hear names that are not those two um, and have like a, an individual, like I had a guest on who just said his conservation hero was this old naturalist dude who lives on a one of the smallest islands in the Faroe Isles and just kind of collects um, like is a taxidermist and naturalist for seabirds and a seabird like researcher and this person who nobody will ever like none of my listeners will probably ever meet or have ever heard of um and so that's why i like the question but it can be a problematic one for sure so thank you for both saying something and acknowledging that as well um i think we're pretty much about done but before you both probably have i mean you both do so much work for so many different people and for yourselves so do you have any uh where can people find you and the work you do and do you have any organizations or groups you want to kind of just put out into the world um in my own little way i don't have a big uh listenership but yeah anything you'd like to say to wrap up yeah sure um people can find me at, at tolmea which is spelled t-o-l-m-e-i-a that's the that's the spelling <laughs> it's a tricky name um and yeah i do I post about climate activism and artwork, hopefully more artwork um, in the near future. Um, and my podcast as well at Idealistically Pod on Instagram and at Idealistically P on Twitter. And it can be found on like most of the podcast platforms other than Amazon. I just didn't feel, didn't feel right to put it on there. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, you can find me on all the social media platforms uh, at Selena X Chen on Instagram. So that's C-E-L-I-N-A-X-C-H-I-E-N. Also fun spelling. Um, and I'm going to give a shout out to this organization that I work with called Reserva Youth Land Trust. They're at Reserva YLT on Instagram. Uh, we created the world's first entirely youth-funded nature reserve. Uh, we're kind of trying to pave the way of youth empowerment and youth movements, but in the conservation and nature world. And we're now trying to raise funding to make an emergency expansion of that nature reserve in the Choco Rainforest in Ecuador. So please donate to them. Um, and yeah, keep up to date on Instagram. I'm posting photography ideas thoughts whatever <laughs> and hopefully um a documentary coming out soon 
Amazing. That's awesome to hear. Thank you for your shameless plugs. I'm going to shamelessly plug the previous episode of the podcast I did with Selena a while ago now, because it has a big chunk on Reserva there. So if people want to learn more direct from you, uh, they can go listen to that. And also on a, yeah, again, plug Tolly's podcast, because it's just, um, as I said, I've talked about some pretty depressing things on the podcast. And (laughs) I think the last one I did that really was just like, why it's an important topic but I can't remember what it was but it was it was really just not something that I wanted to be spending an hour of my day in that headspace talking about I immediately went and listened to an episode of your podcast and just went <laughs> I feel better now because it was just yeah oh no that was it yeah I was talking with someone from Survival International about like uh environmental racism and neocolonialism and conservation and I was just like yeah I can't I can't deal with this right now. Like it's an important topic, a vital topic to have there, but I'm also just like not in the right headspace. So I went and listened to Tolly's podcast and it fixed me right up for a little, a little bit. So um, yeah, thank you so much is all that's left to say really for being here and for doing this at short notice. If people get through the quite long um, episode that I'll be putting out, which I hope everyone will, and if people get this far, they'll learn some really, really important things for the future. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Tolly and Selena for taking the time to speak to me today. You can find links to all their websites and social media in the description down below. My featured coffee today is from Birds and Beans Coffee. This roaster focuses on a reciprocal and ethical relationship with their growers. With their organic, direct and fair trade, bird-friendly and shade-grown coffee certifications showing their commitment to both the rights of their growers and biodiversity. The link to their website will be, as always, in the description. A big thank you, as always, to those who support me on Ko-Fi. I'd like to especially give a shout out to long-term supporter of the podcast, Jordan Lerma. I haven't mentioned this yet, but Jordan is a regular supporter of the podcast and a really great guy and you can listen to both my past episodes with Jordan on all streaming platforms. By donating to my Kofi page this means I can do more walking podcast episodes with local conservationists, cover more exciting events in the near future like my Falmouth Marine Blue Day episode and support sustainable and ethical coffee growers. Coffee with Conservationists is now available on a variety of streaming services including Spotify, Anchor, google and apple podcasts as ever thank you all so much for listening i've been your host george stephen jones and this is coffee with conservationists